Hi, and welcome to Figure of Speech, a program from WRBH, where every week you can meet local poets and writers from the New Orleans community and listen to them share their work. Today's episode, we welcome on poet Shana Monet. Shana is a New Orleans native, a Pushcart-nominated poet, a 2018 Best of the Net nominee, a former poetry editor at Bayou Magazine, and the winner of the 2018 Iowa Review Award in Poetry. Recently, her work has appeared in Sundog Lit, Yamasi Journal, and the Iowa Review. She tweets at Shana Monet. And here she is. Hi, thanks for having me. I'm going to be sharing several poems. This first one, though, is by a poet who I greatly admire, Ai Ogawa. It's from her book, Dread, which came out in 2003. Ai is a poet known for her mastery of the dramatic monologue form, uh, which is a form in poetry in which the voice or the POV of the poem is in the voice of a single character addressing an auditor or an audience who may or may not be there. She's inspired me a great deal with her work, so I thought I'd share this poem. It's called Lullaby. Run, my child. Don't delay. The beast is beating on the door with rifle butt and fists. Soon his boots are stomping on the floor as if he's cold and trying to warm his feet. He hasn't had a thing to eat for days and tears bread from your sister's hand before he shoots her in the head and smashes all the dishes. His mouth full, he chews as he ascends the stairs two at a time and finds me calmly sitting on the bed. Waiting for me, he asks, as he hurls a stone that strikes me in the face breaking my jaw, then proceeds to set fire to my body, after which he goes back downstairs and outside. The hound howls as the neighbors steal what's left of us. We're dead, after all. Who cares whether or not we suffered, or even that they once called us friends. Because in the end, they agree. We got what we deserved for being born. I hoped you would survive. But you die anyway, beside the road. Your body frozen to the earth until spring, when your bones are discovered by the hound who buries them with other bones he's collected as he roams the countryside, masterless now and wild. He's forgotten. He was once companion to a child who used to scratch him between the ears. Now that spot is inflamed, and he shakes his head and rubs it against a tree beside the stream where we picnicked and he stood on his hind legs, almost dancing as he begged for scraps of boiled ham, dark bread, and deviled eggs. Now 
When he hears the sound of voices, he growls, covers the bones quickly and hides beneath the burned-out shell of a car until they fade. Like all the voices that once made us family, but could not save us from our destiny. So, this next poem has a lot going on. I'm from New Orleans, and this city is known a lot for its relationship and or history with magic and, and you know Haitian voodoo and whatnot. So I like to play with these stereotypes a lot, particularly since I've been doing ancestry research. My family's been um, connected to New Orleans since before the city's founding. So um, I just always find all kinds of interesting things, often difficult to believe or seemingly supernatural. I like to play with these, you know, stereotypes and tropes of like uh, fantasy and, and the supernatural as well, because people of color often are portrayed or seen as supernatural or superhuman creatures that cannot be killed or or have typical human emotions or behavioral reactions. And I like to play with this idea of, of blackness in terms of malevolence and in terms of uh, race. So these ideas were all floating in my mind at the time when, when I wrote this poem. A final thing that also influenced the poem was seeing a, a performance of Macbeth in Washington, D.C., primarily by a cast of people of color. It was really, really riveting. So it inspired, there's a lot of allusions to Macbeth in this poem as well. There's an epigraph from Macbeth, actually, to this poem. It's the moment when Macbeth realizes that one of the final prophecies of the Weird Sisters is coming to fruition. Um, the Weird Sisters are these supernatural figures in Macbeth. So um, he's, Macbeth is, is very surprised, <laughs> uh, to say the least. So he says, I pull in resolution and begin to doubt the equivocation of the fiend that lies like truth. So this poem is called Hazards of Being, a Black Mage in the 23rd Century. Some might ask you to perform tricks if you give them the slip they might call you tricky. A trick? Losing yourself in a tome you could conjure a memory of kindergarten and a boy's blue lips. Or something entirely different from what critics expect. If you enchant the red dress robes from your mage college graduation and the hood you ditched, which indicates your class and year, minutes after the apprenticeship and dual casting and double consciousness, both could float around without you. Speak for you, if necessary. Trust me. You can't miss an equivocation. Every one points to nothing. You will eat, sleep, Seethe so that the clan in power can talk you into their tedious organizations. As an infiltrator, your hands tend to be tied in the office when another black wizard summons a familiar. While raising the dead, 
An issue might speak as it eats at you. Your growing family. Ask the cost of each spell cast through and against you in these last four hundred years. Yes. A line of blood smeared on the floor can tether as the mouth of a line of sorcerers you divine red signs red as runes before the birth of your first child they say stop do not enter one way dead and no yield which almost breaks spilling the cask of the womb open, but fails to. Your eyes, mystified, burn, is a hazard, too. The third and a backlash of hexes you will one day need to explain the source of. Code words. Instituted before your induction into these ordinary communities, once spelled out, might never escape you like being possessed. Poisons rendered in the flesh. You may kill a child before or after you bear it. Test the magical properties of that child and its kin. A danger. Fulsome creatures, these. Their habits, if turned into ingredients or objects, could find a fiend imbued with gall where the manna of a mortal's milk should be. So this next poem plays upon the same themes and tropes, but it's in a different form. This is a beau présent, which is an experimental French form. Uh, the constraints are that every word in the poem is derived from the letters of a real person's name, which also serves as the poem's title. So I've been doing these, these beau présents in conjunction with my uh, research on my ancestors. And so the titles of these Beauprésents have been taken from my ancestors' names. This Beauprésent is for my great-grandfather, Oscar Joseph LeBlanc, born in New Orleans in 1888, and my great-grandmother, Ophelia Louise Washington, who was born in Haiti around 1891. And there's an epigraph for historical context, which I'll read. The parents of Lily and Lucille Stella LeBlanc, my paternal grandmother, lived together as common-law husband and wife in New Orleans, though Oscar spent the last 24 years of his life institutionalized at the East Louisiana State Hospital for the Insane. Some say he'd been hexed by a voodoo lady in their neighborhood who kept and cursed the band of his hat. Alternate sources suggest Ophelia struck him in the head with a cast-iron skillet, while others note that Oscar, perfectly sane, was held at the hospital against his will, as a source of free labor. So this poem is called Oscar Joseph LeBlanc and Ophelia Louise Washington. Listen, 
the neighboring spirit ate. There was hat. But LeBlanc, Oscar, Jay, who is less and less a substance to ingest at this point in the ritual. In East Louisiana state to waste, where we are wont to plague. Listen, the neighbor, the incantation was strong, stronger than a single spirit's. So tell us, who, how can a pistol, pearl or not, help Ophelia? Help Oscar? In Louisiana and Haiti, a hat is a hat is a hat. Bitter is the ash Ophelia's ghost. We taste now. One of Lillian's sons has a little one. Shana. Here. Sweet Ophelia, slip her a piece of paper. People in gris et blanc. Signs, once begotten, begin again in these hearers, though none can last. True. Those who hear us can't see through hospital walls. The rasp. We spirits operate. Sign contraries can still recall. So, Ophelia? No. No one slips through these people, this paper, or can use a patient so. But a beast? At least till our potion reaps one. Till hue of Ghost parlor to bitter ash. So these last three that I'm going to be sharing with you are ekphrastics. Surprisingly, they won the Iowa Review Award in Poetry last year, which was really nice, to say the least. Ekphrastics are poems that respond to a visual piece of art. They can critique the artist. They can critique the art if one thinks it's possible to separate the art from the artist. And they can give voice to the characters in and, and a painting or dramatize the scene. They can bring it to life. There are a lot of other things ekphrastics can do, but these are the main things that I try to do in these that I'm going to share with you. This first poem responds to a painting by Henry Fuseli, a Swiss-born painter whose work is often associated with romanticism. The painting is called The Negro Avenged. It was completed between 1806 and 1807. In the painting, it depicts three figures. One is really easy to see. Another, you can kind of see, but it's complicated. And the third one, you can barely see. You'll hear the poem and, and hopefully you'll be able to guess who I mean and which figures I mean, or their degree of visibility or invisibility. So this 
poem is called In Hamburg with the Negro Avenged, and it has an epigraph from The Souls of Black Folk, which reads, Like a tantalizing will-o'-wisp, maddening and misleading the headless host. In Hamburg with the Negro Avenged, the actor when he sees Fuseli's painting in his mind for the second time, thinks, Your body's so black, your mama can't see you. Your face. The woman clutching this figure, a semi-centered and blackened male, first stands out for the actor due to her yellow-brown skin. The moment before, a preternatural echo voicing the, the vibrato and distortion of two nearing white men jars him slightly from the avenged Negro. The mulatresse in her white dress and her unfurled black hair long in the wind, almost blacker, the actor notes, than the Negro's blue-black skin. The disarmed torso of the avenged disappears into the whipping storm as her one reddish arm reaches and slaps a cackle of lightning. The left corner paints the suggestion of a body of water just as the actor finally notices the third figure, a darker brown onlooker. Hooded, she appears with red vaginal lips right at their feet, relocating time and the plateau where these three figures find themselves thrust upon. Fusely's storm is a headache in the actor's mind. A boulder rendering this black disappearing, nearly headless and out of sight. So this next poem is, as I said, also nekfrastic completed in 1872 by Adolf Menzel. is called Atelier Vond, which translates to Studio Wall. This work is associated with realism. The Studio Wall is kind of this blood-red wall that has like these casks and death masks and busts and all this weird and hooks hanging on the wall. And it's really like feels very purposely arranged and in a way, the painting is an ekphrastic as it's in response to these death masks and casks. So this is a, a poem about painting, about art. So this poem is called On Menzel's Atelier Vond. This cast has dissembled before. The more you study them, the more thoroughly each remark bores through. 
You fool. Your high concepts of art. You warn them. Speak like that again. You could as easily prefer these rooms to the clamorous outside world. Your plans, resolved bust, head, and hands from dust to three rows on this studio wall. Each thumbed hook, humble reminders of death's last face. The hound gave chase. The child, without a trace of envy, you no longer are. They laugh when you reach the studio wall, suggest, though in jest, you fracture into tangibles and turn idea that they might deftly touch. So this last poem that I'm going to share with you is in response to Pablo Picasso's Guernica, which was completed in 1937. It's an anti-war painting of the Cubism Surrealism movement. For those that might be interested in checking out the the paintings, please do and and maybe listen or read the poems in relation to to them and see what what thoughts they might instigate. This poem is called In Madrid with Picasso's Guernica. Sharp-tongued, afloat in the doorway, the tongueless mass will fringe and press closer. We won't suspect. Never detect the electric bulbous candle of an eye, nor the sect of bodies to follow. The before and after. The planes. The cilia numbers. A tally of dashes. A sty. For human, horse, or bull. Which breaks us. Abreast, we couldn't see digits. A tone, none in the gray, black, and white. As line and form, we're prone to think each slash and stroke always over neutral and not dislocated limbus geometric is war is smoke is what a broken neck or sword footfalls in the frame First, the rush, vibratile over whales, then nothing.
ignited like a candle through the door. That was poet Shanna Monet, and that's our show. You've been listening to Figure Speech, a community poetry and writing program from WRBH. Tune in Saturdays at 1 p.m. and every Monday at 9 p.m. for more great New Orleans writing. Thank you for listening.